Okay, so today's Bible reading will be James chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through to five, chapter 5, verse 12. If you've got one of these blue Bibles, which there's plenty at the back if you don't have one, uh, it's page 1219. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged the judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yes, I am. Uh, keep those um, Bibles open to James chapter 4, and you've got an outline, if you've got a booklet there, that shows us uh, where we're going today. How many of you have seen the film Notting Hill? Not as many as I thought might have. You poor things. <laughs> Notting Hill's a romantic uh, comedy about uh, the coming together by a fairly tortuous path of a famous, though vulnerable, American actress and a London nobody travel bookshop owner. But there's a little piece in there, in the film, which I want to play for you, that illustrates the theme that uh, we have before us today, I think, when we're looking at James, the importance of perspective uh, when it comes to our human behaviour. The context of this clip uh, is that Anna Scott, who's the actress played by Julia Roberts, has come to William Thacker, what a terrible name, played by Hugh Grant, um, for support after some nude or semi-nude photos of her taken years ago when she was young and poor, were published in the newspapers. Things go sour when William's flatmate, Spike, 
mentions to some mates in the pub that Anna Scott is staying with them. A media scrum outside William's place develops by the next morning and Anna has just at this stage gone on a total tirade, as only Julia Roberts can if you've seen some of her films, blaming William for what has happened. The clip picks up the scene as Anna is on her way out to be rescued by her team. Life, friends, you see, is in the end all about perspective. Our behaviour so often depends on how we look at life, the perspective we actually bring to what happens in it. In the film, of course, William Thacker there just sees newspapers as a daily occurrence, here today, gone tomorrow. So, though nude pictures or whatever might be bad, um, Anna really has not that much to worry about. Much more monumental for him is his friend. He slipped, fell downstairs, now is paraplegic uh, in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Anna Scott, on the other hand, knows that newspapers in a digital age are a record of events that can be stored away and replayed at any time. So she's completely freaked out. And in that poignant line at the end of that clip, she says, I will regret this forever. Life, you see, is all about perspective. And it touches every part of our human lives. From the person who believes that money and things or achievement and status will somehow bring them fulfilment and contentment, to the person who believes that being thin and outwardly beautiful is what constitutes a woman's worth. Or the person contemplating suicide because they've somehow come to the skewed conclusion that their family and friends would be better off without them. Or the person who believes a loving God cannot possibly exist because of the presence of suffering in the world, especially if they've had some personal experience of it. Perspective affects everything. It affects everything. And this is no different for the Christian life. If we're to live in the service of God, the way he wants us to, then we must come at things, at what happens in life, from a godly perspective. Or that, will, or living for God, the way he wants us to, will simply be impossible. In this passage today before us, James singles out three aspects of human life, relevant to his readers then, but still very relevant to our context today. And he wants to talk about what it means for the Christian life and behaviour to have a godly perspective on these things. You'll see them there in your outline. Godly perspective about the future, godly perspective about riches and wealth, and godly perspective about adversity and suffering. I want to concentrate more on the first and third than the middle one today. So we begin then with godly perspective about the future. Let me read verses 13 to 17 again of chapter 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this 
or that. As it is, your boast in your arrogance, you boast in your arrogance dreams and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So what we see here, first of all, is a condemnation of arrogance in planning for the future. Verse 13 to me sounds so familiar in our context today, at least in this part of the world. Human beings who think, plan and act as if they are masters of their own destiny. That they can control their future, travel, carry on business, make money in any way they like. You can do whatever you want, we're told. Be whatever you like to be if you set your mind upon it. Arrogance in our planning and the notion that we can secure the future. We ought always to realise that James is not talking here just to non-Christians but fellow brothers and sisters in his own church. It seems to me that's fairly clear when he talks about the Lord's will in verse 15 which would be of course fairly irrelevant to non-Christians if he was talking to them. No, James is talking to us, you and me. To people who come to church on Sunday but carry on Monday to Saturday planning for the future as if everything will stay the same and is secure. That is certainly what the world and our media encourage us to do all the time, don't they? And things like the massive level of credit card debt in our own country, it seems to me, is a testimony to that. But, says James, rather pointedly, deflating the balloon of human arrogance, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Human life is a mist. Or some translators think the word ought to be translated a puff of smoke, like just a fog. Here, one moment, gone and vanished the next. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? Think of your life like that, but true nevertheless. Friends, the reality we don't often like to face is that human life is uncertain and frail. And I suppose if I ever needed to be convinced of that personally over Uh, that came home well and truly to our family over the past nine months with what's happened with our 34-year-old daughter, Stephanie. Uh, As most of you know, one moment she's a very fit, vibrant young woman working overseas as a a missionary. The next she is home on leave, diagnosed with bowel cancer a few days before Christmas, a cancer so growing so aggressively even the doctors are amazed. No one thought she'd last beyond March. But in the Lord's mercy, we've had um, a number of months longer, uh, but we still all know it's only a matter of time. She had lots of plans um, for what she was going to do and uh, serve after her leave. Life is uncertain. And it's frail. It might be, apart from disease, a lost job, a financial crisis, a car accident, an accident at work, or even 
on a sporting field where this week I was watching a program about a promising young rugby player who just through an awkward tackle all of a sudden found himself a paraplegic. How arrogant, how arrogant to think and believe as if we are in control. James says in verse 16 that those who claim to belong to God, for those who belong to God, to act like that is positively evil. What are we to do then? Sit around and do nothing? Take it as it comes? No, not at all. James doesn't say don't plan. There's nothing essentially wrong with planning itself but there is plenty wrong with presumption. So I've summarised James' words in verses 15 to 17 in your outline as plan then with a humble dependence on God's will. Planning really is essential and good and necessary to navigate through life. Even planning in the life in the light of life's uncertainty via things like insurance and superannuation and the like I think is wise. But all our plans must be done in the knowledge that we're always dependent upon the Lord's will. If the Lord will, says James. Now, of course, I know Christians who uh, in the past have always used this phrase, you know, the Lord's will, if the Lord's willing, God willing or whatever, like a mantra. Say it after every sentence. Uh, but that didn't, And it didn't mean much more in the end. Now, I think James means for us to not to say the phrase over and over again, but to develop an attitude of dependence in humility when we make our plans. How do we do that? Well, at least two ways, I think. First, we need to take to heart, take to heart that life is uncertain and frail by not assuming that everything will be the same as it is now. I think that has loads to say about the way we use our finances, the debt we accumulate, the amount we're willing to give away. Second, we ought always to commit our plans to the Lord in prayer. Nothing wrong with asking for his favour upon our plans, but always acknowledging our dependence upon him, upon his will, and our own commitment to whatever that will may be. That is why I think James includes verse 18, a bit of an odd verse. If anyone knows then, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. I think he's primarily referring not only to just what he has said, that is, he is describing for them the good way to live, rather than an arrogant way to live. Independence upon God so that they may, if they do something wrong, if they ignore God, if they fail to do the good they ought, well, that's sin for them. Of course, what the theologians often called the sin of omission, not just the sin of commission, doing something wrong, but not doing something that is right, that we ought. How would you assess your perspective on the future today? <coughs> might someone else looking in upon your life, fly on the wall, you know, see you as like everyone else? Would anyone notice any indication of a dependence upon God about the future?
Well, James moves to the second issue now, godly perspective about riches and wealth. Now, of course, when James talks about business plans, making money, in verse 13, he already has the rich in mind in this passage. Now he addresses them directly in the first six verses of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields and are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in luxury on earth, in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Here we have a condemnation of what I've called self-interested misuse of riches and wealth. And the language is strong, isn't it? Wouldn't have liked to have been someone James was addressing there, maybe looking at me straight in the eye, something like that, with words like this. So strong, in fact, that there's divided opinion amongst commentators as to whether James is actually addressing these words to Christians or to non-Christians. And some believe one and some believe the other. Again, there certainly doesn't seem to be any indications that Christians are at least excluded from such a condemnation here. And unfortunately over the years I can tell you, friends, that injustice, shonky business practice, self-indulgence have not unfortunately been the preserve of just the non-Christian world. Such misuse derives most often, as James notes, in verse 5, from a desire to hoard our wealth, to live in luxury and self-indulgence. Motivation that could not be, seems to me, more relevant to our age. The language is strong here because for James the consequences are dire. Only the judgement of the Lord Almighty awaits. That's basically what he's saying. The cries of the unjustly treated will reach the Lord and those who behave this way should weep and wail and how the Lord Almighty will bring calamity upon them. James uses that title, I think, Lord Almighty, to emphasise the power with which God will judge people. The encouragement to hoarding our wealth, keeping up with the Joneses beyond them, to self-indulgence in our materialistic world is never far away. And such riches and wealth often come, friends, at the expense of fairness and justice in the way we behave to those around us. We need to look carefully at our own lives and take seriously how we might resist the world's push to measure our lives by what we have. Well, the third issue is the reality of suffering, concerns the reality of suffering in our world. What is a godly perspective about adversity and suffering? Verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too 
Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of the patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. With these words, James returns virtually to where he began the letter, with a call to patient endurance. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 2, he began with these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Life brings with it hurdles and hardships, and patience and perseverance are essential qualities to navigate it successfully. From a godly perspective, James reminds his readers of the Lord's coming which of course is unique to them. Unique reason God's people are called to be patient and steadfast in the face of adversity and suffering. They know eternity awaits in all its glory. But it's not easy. James likens it to the farmer who patiently waits for the autumn and spring rains necessary to produce a crop. As any farmer knows, and some of you would know a whole lot better than me, that's for sure, especially in our uh, country's often dry climate, that is not easy. Nor was it for the farmer in the Mediterranean area back when James spoke. As one writer writes, uh, this waiting is hard psychologically, for in the presence of the vagaries of weather that determine the success of the crop, the farmer is helpless. But the waiting also involves a good deal of hard work and encounters with the vicissitudes of normal existence. So it's not easy for either, for us either, friends, to wait for the Lord's coming. Even though James says it is near. And I think as we get this constantly throughout the Bible about the Lord's uh, presence being near, I think we need to regard this sort of reference as not so much a term of literal time but of imminent time because we live in the last days and nothing else needs to be done nothing else needs to be accomplished before the Lord's return except bringing more people to know Jesus his coming is always imminent it's always near it's always at hand what is the temptation in these circumstances when things are tough? Well, it's to complain and grumble. Sometimes about life itself, sometimes even against God or our circumstances, but here the focus is on grumbling against fellow brothers and sisters in the community. In other words, taking the hardship and opposition that we experience out on others and one another. That is what we often do, isn't it? The old story of you stress so you kick the dog in the family. In our family, if I'm stressed and I start getting short with everyone, 
is a phrase, Saturday Dad has arrived. Must have been I was always bad on Saturdays, but anyway, that's what you and my children often sort of a chorus in this sort of thing. I think it's terribly unfair, but anyway. <laughs> Such grumbling against one another as God's people, though, is a serious matter. And the seriousness of such grumbling is shown here by James' reference to God as judge. He says the judge is standing at the door. Rather, in terms of the way I've summarised James' message, he says, don't grumble, but remember the examples of the prophets and Job. These examples show that the suffering James has in mind is very broad in nature. It's not like uh, other parts of the scripture which more properly just refer, say, to persecution or opposition. Uh, This would certainly be the case in terms of the prophets who uh, spoke the word of the Lord, but Job's entirely different. If you know anything about Job, life really turned against him. And of course we know, and James knows, that that was a result of a conversation between God and Satan. Job had a large family, big household, tons of servants, great herds of livestock, incredibly well off. But in striking fashion, one after the other, he lost his children, all his servants, all his livestock and wealth, and then to top it all off, he ended up with painful sores all over him and used to get clay piece and scratch them. Yuck. But in all this, we are told he did not accuse God of any wrongdoing. And James reminds his readers of what the Lord brought about for him because of his perseverance through this affliction and agony. At the very end of Job, in chapter 42, verses 12 to 17, we read this. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 16,000 camels, 16,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. He was a feminist. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Such blessing of Job shows for James that even though we might not always understand the reason behind adversity that life brings along, we can be assured, he says, rest assured, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And James' appeal to the example of Job here is not just to show an extraordinary example of perseverance and patience in the face of horrible suffering but to reveal the kindness and compassion of God. He knows that God will shower upon us when the Lord returns in a far greater way than Job experienced. A time when as Revelation describes uh, a time when the things we associate with adversity and suffering 
pain, crying, things like that, will be gone forever. We may not understand why things happen and to whom. This is a mystery, friends, we will never be able to take in this side of the Lord's return. But if we remain faithful servants, patiently enduring adversity and suffering, we certainly know where it will end. Well then, James adds this even odder verse in some ways, if it's in this section in chapter tw- in verse 12 about not swearing, saying yes or no. The above all, in verse 12, um, may mean it belongs to this section or not. It's fairly hotly debated today whether verse 12 should be in this section, the next section or all on its own. But if it does belong here, I think it relates more to the use of the tongue and the fact that he's talked about grumbling and complaining uh, that he's already mentioned and the fact that in in impatience and in difficulty, um, that's often where we do not use our words well and speak with integrity, yes and no. Life, friends, is all about perspective. And every day, in every part of our life, we are bombarded with messages about our perspective on life, our behaviour, our demeanour, even our feelings will all be determined by our perspective. Here James highlights the fallacy of presumption about the future, making plans as if we are in control. He warns us against putting our trust in riches and doing virtually anything to make our lives secure by what we have. And then as the antidote to either of these really, he encourages us in the face of any opposition we might uh, face because we belong to the Lord or any adversity and suffering that comes our way because we do live in a fallen and broken world. He encourages us to be patient to persevere, knowing that just as the Lord has done so much to save us as we've celebrated here today through the first coming of Christ in the way that Christ shed his blood on the cross, so with his coming again such peace, wholeness and joy awaits that we really cannot describe, only imagine. Life is about perspective and let me say that I think the more we are students of God's word the more likely it is that our behaviour will reflect a godly perspective. Let's pray shall we? Heavenly Father we do Thank you today as we have already celebrated the tremendous love and compassion you have shown to us by sending the Lord Jesus into the world to die for us, to save us, to be the substitute for what we truly deserve. We thank you for this amazing love and now we know we wait 
for his return uh, to take all those who belong to him uh, into an eternal glory. But in between, Lord, uh, we need to learn what it is to have a truly godly perspective over our lives. And so we do pray that you would help us in that. We pray that we may never presume that we are in control of our life, but always uh, reflect in our prayers and in the way we approach things and our plans that we are dependent upon you. We pray that you may guard us from the push of the world, which so often wants us to see our life in what we have. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be patient, persevere through the things that life sometimes throws us. Help us because we not only have the examples of the past, of the prophets and Job and others like that in the New Testament, but now we have the great promises of the future when the Lord returns. Encourage us to be patient. Help us to encourage one another um, that we might truly uh, stand out from our world and be faithful to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.